Welcome to Questions That Matter. This is a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I have the great privilege of being the host. My name is Randy Newman, and my conversation partner today is Harry Lee Poe, or Hal Poe, Charles Colson University Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University, and the author of a three-volume biography of C.S. Lewis. We're going to talk about that and how that has affected uh, him and his own spiritual growth. Um, Hal, welcome to Questions That Matter. Thank you, Randy. It's good to be with you. Well, I'm sure uh, some people are wondering right away about, okay, this guy wrote a three-volume biography of C.S. Lewis. What what more needed to be said? Because we already have quite a few um, biographies. I um, immediately grabbed them and started sensing right from the very beginning of the first volume, oh, there is more that we hadn't discovered yet or uncovered. So tell us about how this biography came to be. Well, first of all, I had not planned on writing a three-volume biography of, of Lewis. I'd really only planned on writing about his, uh, his teenage years. Um, I realized that so much of uh, what animated Lewis in his adult life um, was fixed by the time he entered uh, Oxford in, in 1917. And um, it had largely been left out of biographies simply because of space requirements. <laughs> um, there wasn't room to, to uh, really discuss it. And I think most biographers have wanted to talk about his, his um, adult years and his uh, contribution to po- apologetics and uh, those sorts of things. Um, his, his children's stories, his science fiction. Um, so I thought it was time to do a book just about um, Lewis growing up. Um, why was he an atheist as a teenager? And, what started to move him out of that. Um, but his preferences for life were really established then. He, he could not have become an English professor at Oxford if um, he'd had a different kind of pleasure reading when he was a, a teenager. Hmm. Um, he, he'd planned on being a philosopher, right. but he couldn't get a job. <laughs> when he finished his college work, he just couldn't get a job. And he decided to, to stay on at Oxford one more year and do a second degree in English. Huh. Now, when you think about it, to do a college degree in one year at Oxford University is a bit hmm. of a stretch, even if you're a very smart person, which Lewis was. But the reason he could do it is because he had done all the reading uh, of, of what's called the syllabus Mm. Uh, 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 during his his uh, years uh, living with his tutor um, W. T. Kirkpatrick right. uh, down in Surrey, so for he read about two hundred books um, between the ages of sixteen and eighteen, and um, those just happened to be the books he needed to be able to. Um, do an Oxford degree in English. So mm. those sorts of things, but also the kind of story that he fell in love with. Mm, yes. Um, that happened when he was living with Kirkpatrick. He'd, um, he loved Norse mythology. I think probably most of your listeners will know that. He, he just fell in love with Norse mythology and would devour anything he could find about it. He came across 
William Morris, who was a great leader of uh, the art world and literary world in the late 19th century. Um, Morris had written um, several things on, on Norse mythology. And so Lewis would read anything that Morris wrote, and he came across Morris's novel, uh, The Well at the World's End. Hmm. And um, this story really gripped him. And it's a familiar story. It's the hero who goes off on a quest um, that takes him to the end of the world in search of that the great it, whatever it is, the prize, <laughs> the gold yeah. bug, you know, the great thing, the pearl of great price. And it's the sort of thing you, you give up everything for it. You, um, you, you. Uh, dream the impossible dream. You go where the brave dare not go. You march into hell for a heavenly cause. That song from the Man of La Mancha, Don yeah. Quixote, uh, when Cervantes wrote that that famous novel, um, he was talking about this bygone age that Lewis was just beginning to discover. And so the hero um, finally gets to the to to his quest. But along the way, he's rescued the damsel in distress and done everything necessary. And once having achieved his goal, he returns home a changed person. Mm-hmm. That is, in the, in the midst of the journey, he becomes a different person. Yeah. Lewis was deeply moved by this story. And then he, he decided he'd find out where Morris got it from. And it was the the medieval romance, which is an allegory of the salvation story. And um, he found it in um, Mallory's story of the quest for the Holy Grail. He found it in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Yeah. Um, And then he found it in a more recent story written by a Scot named George MacDonald. And how uh, <laughs> the name of the story is pronounced different ways, fantasies, um, but it's the same. It's the same plot. Lewis. So that's what he's he's falling in love with as a teenager. And those of you who've read um, the the fiction of Lewis know that it's the plot for all seven of the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, and it's the plot for all three of Lewis's science fiction stories. It's also, um, well, the, the journey story then becomes the big plot. And I would argue that Lewis infected his friend J.R.R. Tolkien with this plot. Hmm. Um, and we find it in the subtitle to The Hobbit, There and Back Again. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. It's also the plot to the Lord of the Rings. Sure, sure. And Frodo goes to the end of the world, and he comes back a different person. Mm-hmm. And um, mm. so uh, this this sort of thing is is why I thought um, Lewis's teenage years needed to be examined more closely. There's a lot mm. more than just those, but those are some important ones. And um, so his teenage years would be the, the, the rails along which the rest of his life emerged. And um, also it would become the track for his conversion. Yeah. Because in, yeah. in reading these stories, he fell in love with these ideals, these um, um, 
things like truthfulness and and um, duty and courage and um, these values which did not fit into his atheist view of the world. Yeah. Um, as a materialist um, and uh, uh, nurtured in this by W.T. Kirkpatrick, Lewis believed that there are no values um, in a brute universe of, of um, energy and matter. Um, there's only what is, just brute fact, atoms and subatomic particles, and there are no values. There are preferences that society establishes, but those are uh, shift with the wind. Hmm. But he came to realize, no, there really is right and wrong. And so if there's a right and wrong, where does it come from? Yeah, You'll find him exploring that in detail in his first radio broadcasts, uh, which he named Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe, yes. which is the yeah. first section of his book, Mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's critically important, um, this relationship between what he was reading and what he was thinking and his spiritual journey and what became his career. So so now let me let me let our uh, listeners know these three volumes. The first one is Becoming C.S. Lewis, and it's really the, the first 20 years of his life. And then the second volume is The Making of C.S. Lewis, and the subtitle is From Atheist to Apologist. And then uh, the final volume, The Completion of C.S. Lewis, From War to Joy. Here's what I'm wondering. Um because I, I saw that in the first volume where you say these values that he got from reading all of these these books before he became a Christian shaped the rest of his life. Now, in Mere Christianity, Lewis says, you know, when when we're when we're longing for these things in the stories or the North mythology or the music or the art, you either keep searching, keep searching, keep searching, or you become a cynic and a crank like, oh yeah, I used to go chasing after that, or you become a Christian. Did did Lewis ever have a period of disillusionment before becoming a Christian where, why am I so into these stories? Ah, they're just chasing after the moon, that kind of thing. What Did he ever have that or was it Longing, oh. longing, longing, and wait. Oh, wait a minute. Here's the ultimate. This is this is the fulfillment I'm looking for. Uh, yes, it's an interesting thing. He mentions it in uh, his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by, by Joy, mm-hmm. um, that goes up through his, his conversion to faith in Christ. Um, and he says of this period, um, everything that he believed to be true was essentially just dry as dust. It yeah. was just right. But everything that he uh, that he loved, uh, he believed to be an illusion. Yeah, and uh, not real at all. So he had this. Um, he was committed to his materialism, and he spent um, about ten years trying to prove that uh, these values have uh, their origin in matter. Hmm. That is that they are uh, confined to this universe, this world, and they somehow emerge um, uh, without what he called um, the uh, Promethean fallacy. Hmm. Uh, That's an intriguing 
uh, term, he referred to the, um, you know, his options were that it either, the, the values either arise within the world of matter or they come from outside the world of matter. And um, if they come from outside, he called that the Promethean uh, fallacy. Uh, Prometheus was one of the titans in uh, Greek mythology before the reign of Zeus and his brothers and sisters began. Mm-hmm. And Prometheus was the one who um, gave uh, the gift of fire to humans. Ah, and yeah. until then, fire had belonged exclusively to the gods and the humans didn't have fire. Hmm. Um and so it's the idea that, that, that fire comes from the world of the gods. And uh, Lewis uh, w- just hated the possibility that uh, right and wrong came from God mm. rather than just emerging from matter. And um, in the end, after trying for 10 years to prove the Promethean fallacy wrong, he embraced it. And... Um, uh, so yes, there was that that um, uh, bitter struggle uh, between the things he loved and the things he believed to be true, and they were at odds with one another. Hmm. You know, um, uh, I, I've always I, I just wondered. Uh, we we get a whole lot of glimpses from his letters and things about what he was like personality wise, and of course my my mind always imagines him in the pub with his friends laughing. And he even said, there's that famous quote, uh, I love the sound of male laughter. Um, but, but at the end of the second volume, you say this, and I thought, oh, this is a glimpse I hadn't seen before. You wrote, um, and so now this is the volume on him becoming a Christian. And then there's a tremendous amount of difficulty in his life. All the way through his life had difficulties. But on the last page, you write, in the face of all he went through, maintaining an ordinary routine that might lead someone to discouragement, if not despair, Lewis did not become a complainer. In fact, he stopped being a complainer. In his pre-conversion letters to his brother and to Greaves, Lewis complained about almost everything with ease. It almost appears that he complained simply to stay in practice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, um, so I can see that his brilliant, very thorough mind, if not pointed in the direction of joy and the Lord, yeah, it'd be pretty miserable. I imagine he could complain with the best of them. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is fascinating. Um, after uh, I don't think I would have liked Jack Lewis before his conversion. Oh, say more. He, he was <laughs> arrogant. He was obnoxious. He mm. was um, patronizing. He was uh-huh, uh, sure. judgmental. Uh, he was, a, did I say a snob? Uh, <laughs> he, he was just someone I, that I, I'm repelled by. Mm. And um, after his conversion, his whole character changes. Um, and, uh, all of that snobbery, that, that, um, sense of superiority, he knows he's smart and he always says that pride is his greatest temptation, Hmm. temptation Hmm. to pride. He he knew, so he he had self-awareness. That's the way we talk about it today. The uh, biblical way to talk about it is to say that he had experienced the conviction of sin. Yeah. 
Yeah. And um, so what I like about Lewis is, as you say, his letters and his diary um, give us a good picture of him, but they also show how the Holy Spirit was working mm. in his life and yeah. changing him, as Paul says, from glory unto glory. Yes. And it's yes. a real, uh, you can see it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just an objective reality that people can see um, about him. And, and yes, in his, in his early years, everything was easy. He really, he had life on a silver platter and complained. But after that, once he was a Christian, and then he became a Christian right at the beginning of the, um, of the Depression. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, be, he believed in God probably the latter part of January 1930. And then um, a September of the next year, to early October was his final um, coming to faith in Christ. But this is the this is the beginning of the depression. It was difficult mm-hmm. days, and yet his complaining pretty much goes away. Um, we we see a little bit of it in the austerity after World War II, which is in Volume Three. There just wasn't any food. <laughs> it's one thing if you don't have it during the war. But when the war's over, things are supposed to change, and they yeah. didn't. And so he was just uh-huh. disgusted with the government. Hmm. But otherwise, he, he was not a complainer. He was not a complainer. The pieces that you brought to the writing of these three volumes, was it more research about his letters and his diary and personal um, aspects of who he was? Is that... Are those some of the new ingredients that we find out now? Yes. Um, thanks to Walter Hooper, mm. his diary from 1922 to 1927 is in print, available. You don't have to go to Oxford to see it. Mm, okay. All of his letters, three volumes of letters, each volume, I think, running over a thousand pages. Yeah. Um but also letters of people who knew him, Ruth Pitter, Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, Charles Williams, mm. J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, so all the letters, the primary documents. There has been a tradition of how you write a biography of Lewis, and um, all of these these primary materials were not readily available until um, the early part of this century, they were coming out between 2004 and what around 2007, the letters. So, okay. so Alistair McGrath's biography is the first one that makes use of those letters. Okay, okay. Um, yes. But he, but he had um, space limitations. So his is a one volume biography, right. and he focused on uh, the things that he he wanted to focus on, um, and it's a it's a fine biography, but. It it there the, it it is the limitation of space. Yeah. Um, that not all the story can be told. And he focused on a few things. He focused on um, he had had two chapters on the Chronicles of Narnia. So um, there's a, a tradition, as I was saying, about how a, a, a biography of Lewis is is written. And up until recently, the uh, the first biographical notice 
was written by Helen Gardner, who had been offered the chair of um, uh, medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge when Lewis turned it down the first time. (laughs) And then she heard he'd changed his mind. So she gave it up and let him have it, which was an incredible gesture on her part. Anyway, she wrote a biographical notice for, for the Literary Guild when he died. Then his brother Warney wrote a biographical piece when he published um, uh, the first of Lewis's letters. Hmm. And then Roger Lancelin Green, who's close friend of Lewis and Joy, was the one who encouraged Lewis in the writing of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia when the Inklings essentially (laughs) fell apart and weren't interested in the Chronicles. Hmm. Uh, He and Walter Hooper wrote a biography together, which was the first full-blown biography in the mid-70s. Then uh, George Sayer, who was a close close friend of Lewis, one of his students, Lewis spent weekends with uh, Sayer and his wife at at Malvern, where Sayer taught, which is ironic because Lewis hated the school but loved the town. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so he wrote a very important uh, biography called Jack. Yes, yes. Um, And all of these people knew Lewis personally which is both an advantage and a disadvantage. Ah, yes, indeed. And each of them wrote about the Lewis they knew. Mm. It's like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm -hmm. And you get different pictures of Jesus from the Mm. different writers who knew him in different ways. Um, But nobody knew what he was saying to somebody else. Yeah, right. So you got to eavesdrop in on all of those conversations and then weave them together. Yes. And then you've got this, a a lot of um, legend about Lewis um, that isn't necessarily so, but it's nice. (laughs) And so one thing everybody knows is that Lewis was very secretive in private and we don't know about how he felt about Mrs. Moore and that sort of thing. And how do we know that? Because, uh, well, we know what he said about her and you know uh, wait a minute <laughs> that doesn't make sense the way you know he wasn't saying something was because he said it um and so with the letters we find that he would talk to some people about some things and to other people about other things he just mm. didn't um he, he was an edwardian remember he was not a modern person uh, and he did yeah. have that reserve and yeah. You just don't talk about everything. I remember when I was a little boy, little boy, I asked my mother, are we rich or poor? Mm. Mm. I I have this firm memory. And my mother said, Hal, nice people don't talk about money. Uh. (laughs) And, you know, that was the tradition Correct. Now everybody talks about money, but back, yeah. you know that that, and so he was raised a certain way that you talk mm. about some things and don't talk about other things, mm. and it wasn't a, a particular. He wasn't being um, um, sneaky, <laughs> but we find that he told all sorts of private matters to his American correspondents, huh. because Americans are that way. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, they that's right. So um, how intriguing. And he well, told all about, you know, how he was feeling about Mrs. Moore 
to um, um, a, a, an Anglican nun uh, that he mm-hmm. corresponded with. Hmm. So almost um, as a confession. Yeah, uh, mm. d- just to, uh, please pray for me. She's driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the gist of it. Well, let me let me point this in a different direction because uh, the C.S. Lewis Institute is all about discipleship and spiritual growth. You've you've taught about Lewis uh, as a, a separate class for over twenty years. You've talked to uh, who knows how many hundreds, thousands of of students. But how has all of this shaped your own spiritual growth? How has thinking, writing, teaching about Lewis, and then in particular, the writing of this biography, how has that affected you and shaped you in your growth? Um, I suppose in answering that question, it would be important for everyone to know that um, I don't primarily think of myself as a C.S. Lewis scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture, and the, I'm, I'm um, uh, concerned with how the gospel addresses the deep questions of, of every culture. Mm. It's the idea that God has placed a question in every heart that only the gospel answers, mm. and the task of Christians is to listen for the question. Um, Nice. And so I write on on science and religion. I write on um, faith and politics. Um, literature is one area. Films is another. You know, art mm. and and uh, faith. So it's that intersection that that um, is my concern. Um, and so what I discovered was that Lewis had something helpful to say about virtually everything. I was concerned about. Hmm. Lewis was broadly interested in the world. Yes, he was a specialist in medieval, allegorical, courtly love poetry. But you look at his essays, and he wrote very broadly um, and very helpfully. So Lewis, for me, devotionally, is extremely helpful in thinking through the questions of life that I come up against. Mm. And um, so that's that's how I began to focus more and more attention on Lewis and saw him as someone who was helpful to people today. Mm. Um, he, yes, he wrote for his own generation, but he was um, incredibly insightful into the direction in which the culture was marching Right. And in anticipating issues that were going to arise in our time. Yes. And um, and he's just been very helpful in that sense. And he's so grounded in um, scripture and prayer. Um, He had a a vibrant um, devotional life. So every day. He, he read the Bible. He always read a psalm every day. Mm. And he prayed. He prayed for people. He, re- he, he understood that, that discipline. And from time to time, it was a duty. Sure. But he most of the time, it was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think Lewis understood that remarkable thing that that the the apostles talk about that we almost skip over when we read the 
New Testament, you know, in the Old Testament, you get to the begats and we sort of, our mind goes into idle and we just sort of get through the begats, not paying attention to why are they there? Mm. In the New Testament, there's a little phrase we tend to just sort of skip over. Oh, it's nice. In Christ. Oh, uh. in Christ. Mm. The Apostle Paul can hardly write a paragraph. Well, he can hardly write a sentence without including that little prepositional phrase, in Christ. And Mm. the the very nature of what it means to be saved, I am in Christ Jesus, Mm. and he is in me. And um, that is, I think, what most animated Lewis after his conversion. Hmm. That relationship oh, that's beautiful. with Christ. That's beautiful. And so his is a is a is a testimony. He's a faithful witness. He's yeah. a faithful witness. I'm very excited to tell you about a new resource we're working on at the C.S. Lewis Institute. It's going to be a series of relatively short articles that answer challenging questions to the Christian faith. So less than a thousand words, which is like the front and back of one piece of paper, maybe even less than that, of questions like, why does a good God allow evil and suffering? And isn't Jesus just like all the other religious people and aren't all religions the same? And uh, the, the questions that people are likely to ask us if we get into some really good, deep conversations with them. And it's gonna be a growing resource. There'll be a new, um, a, a new topic and a piece of paper, basically, uh, for you to read and and share with non-believers. So check it out. It's going to be, if it's not already, it will be at cslewisinstitute.org slash resources dash category slash challenging questions. Or if that's just crazy, go to cslewisinstitute.org and search for questions. I sure hope that'll help. Thanks. Um, boy, there's so many questions I want to ask and go after. I this may be a question that only I'm interested in, but hey, I'm the guy hosting the podcast. So, for any of the listeners who are not interested in this next question, I promise we won't stay on it very long. But there's this story that uh, that Lewis and Tolkien were talking about the kinds of books they like to read. And the, uh, supposedly Lewis said, uh, Tollers, they're just not writing the kinds of books that you and I like to read. We'll just have to write them ourselves. And so I've always wondered, okay, so what were the kinds of books or what were the books that people were writing that they thought, nope, these aren't the ones? Do you know what, like, what were some of the books that they were reacting against or trying well, to propose yes. a better alternative? They were reacting to the literary trend after World War I. And um, I've argued that that the arts are like the canary in the mine. Mm, mm. That um, you take the, in the old days, they'd take a canary down into the, the mines. And if there was a noxious gas, the canary would die first. Yeah. <laughs> and you knew to get out. Something, there's a problem. Yeah. And after World War One, the arts suddenly fragmented. It happened in painting, in sculpture, in orchestral music, in poetry. You know, Lewis just had utter 
disdain for T.S. Eliot, who oh. changed poetry um, with his poem, The Wasteland. Oh. And um, poetry lo- no longer had meter and rhythm and rhyme. Not only did it not have those, it had no meaning. And you didn't even mm. know what on earth is he writing about. Hmm. And um, so you wound up with novels like the kind that James Joyce was writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and that that whole trend, these novels that are that are bold, earthy. Only they just don't have a plot. <laughs> Nothing happens. Right, brave enough to make the statement that life is meaningless. Exactly. That, yeah. Exactly. And, and they just meaning. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, so they were they were saving the novel. <laughs> um, uh, but that that is so interesting that it happened. Um. Uh, certainly in literature, but you're right. It's also in music and it's in visual arts. Yes, and, and music, and, um, orchestral music became dissonant. Yeah. And it was wrong to have a melody. Yeah. And it was wrong to have pretty music. <laughs> and in art, it's wrong to represent the, the, the world of form as it's seen. Yeah. Um, it must be garish to get to the truth. Um, you know, and on and on and on, all these these cliches um, as as things it, that, that reflected the hopelessness after World War One. Gertrude Stein said of um, that generation of of expatriates in Paris, "You are a lost generation." Yeah, yeah, isn't that something that she coined that phrase? I, I wasn't she kind of part of it, or uh... no? Yeah, she was yeah. part of it. She was part <laughs> yeah. of it. Um, uh, but, so, but remember, C.S. Lewis was part of it too. Right, right. So for uh, him in, um, getting in saved, his, in surprised by joy, he calls it the new look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, this is fascinating. Well, we need to draw this to a close. But I, I, I said to you before we started recording that I know that you've also done a tremendous amount of research and writing about Edgar Allan Poe, because I believe you're, you're related to him. He's a cousin. He's a cousin. I want to invite you back to talk about Edgar Allan Poe and some of the things you've written there, but just give us a little flavor. What, what's some of the fascination for you, besides the fact that he's a cousin (laughs) about his writing? I I mentioned that I work in, I work in science and religion and, Mm -hmm. um, In 1848, Poe wrote a treatise on the physical and the spiritual universe Mm. in which he's trying to work out whether or not God exists. His conclusion is that God does exist. um, But in that treatise, um, he proposed really to overthrow uh, Aristotle's understanding of the universe Uh, Aristotle said the universe is eternal in duration. It has always been. And it is infinite in size. It goes on and on forever. Mm. And Poe said, no, the universe had a beginning. It's very big, but it is limited in size. And he Mm. proposed what we now call the Big Bang Theory. Um, He said that the universe emerged from a primordial particle and that this was the plan of God. Um, 
So it's, it's very theological all the way through, but he's in it. He proposes the Big Bang Theory. He proposes what we now call the theory of relativity. Hmm. Um, he proposes what we now call chaos theory. Hmm. Um, he, um, he proposes all the big ideas in physics of the 20th century uh, because they've all got to be in place in order for that kind of universe to work, hmm. which in fact turns out to be the kind of universe we have. But it's, what he was trying to deal with was the problem of suffering. Okay, now remember Lewis, that was Lewis's uh, big issue. A lot of people have that issue. Most sure, people sure. ask that question. Yeah. Only for yeah. both Lewis and, and Poe, it was personal. Uh, why did my mother die? Hmm. And both of them had that experience. Their mother died when they were children. And for Poe, he looked at the universe in a literary sense. He said that um, looking at at different scientific explanations of the way the world works, he had been critiquing the problems with American drama. And uh, in the early 19th century, the plays that were being written in the United States were just awful, gosh, awful. And he was explaining the way plot works. And he said, the universe is a plot of God. Mm. Um, The universe is the perfect plot. And his conclusion about, um, you know, is, is, is if there's a God, is he fair? And his idea was, well, we're not at the end of the story yet. Oh, it's at oh. the end of the story that all things are resolved. Hmm. And so it's a combination of an exploration of, of uh, love being the motive behind the universe, uh, reconciliation of the, the problems of suffering. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Um, hmm. But his I'm, conclusion, yes, yes, there is a God. And um, then six weeks before he died, he went forward at a Sons of Temperance revival meeting in, um, in Richmond. And the difference between Poe and Lewis is that Lewis wrote almost everything he wrote after his conversion. Poe wrote everything he wrote before oh. his conversion. How interesting. Oh, my goodness. So, Did he write anyway, anything? That's what got me interested in Poe. Yeah. And um, that the, the business of, of right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. This was, this was what po- started Poe off. Uh, you may remember that Poe invented the mystery story. Yeah. And he was exploring these spiritual questions. And um, the thing about the mystery story, it only works if the audience brings to the story the concept of justice. Yeah, yeah. You, the audience no has to care. The audience has to care who done it. <laughs> the audience has to want the innocent person set free. Yeah. The audience has to want to know the truth. And the problem with truth is it's a value. Mm. Um, either somebody did it or they didn't do it. So what is the truth behind it? And Mm -hmm. I don't know. There are just a lot of questions related to um, right and wrong that are tied up with the mystery story. But it's an element of what Poe was was concerned with. Did he write anything after his conversion? 
Poe? No. Oh, okay. So it's all the questions being asked and the tension being drawn to a, a fever pitch. Exactly. Uh, wow. And well, so this we're gonna, goes uh, back in with, with um, our apologetics. Often we come up with um, interesting arguments and persuasive ideas, but apologetics only works if you're answering the questions people are asking. Yes. Yeah. And resolving Not the tension just, that they feel. Yeah. And so Poe and Lewis are examples of people asking questions. <laughs> and um, so that's that's my interest there. I love it. Well, that seems like a perfect commercial to bring a podcast to an end that's called Questions That Matter. Sorry, I know that's tacky, but... Um, <laughs> Hal, I'm, I'm really, I really appreciate all your work, and I do look forward to more conversations. But for this one, I'm going to draw things to a close. To our listeners, we want to say thank you for listening. Um, please um, rate us and say uh, positive things about us if you like us on all those platforms where people check out podcasts. Um, and please also visit our website, cslewisinstitute.org, for lots of resources to help you grow in your love for the Lord. May it be that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Thanks.